You're listening to Resurrection Life with Pastor Nathan Trice. Welcome back, brothers and sisters in Christ. He is risen. Since launching my Resurrection Life podcast at the outset of this year, uh, I've been recording lessons on a subject near and dear to my heart, that of Christian parenting. And that's a subject that I've far from exhausted, and Lord willing, we'll be returning to that series on parenting in the fall of this year. Another opportunity that this weekly podcast presents, however, uh, is for me to share with members and friends of Resurrection some of the preaching that I've done in years past that seems especially relevant to the time we're living in now. Uh, Many pastors have made the effort to capture some of their sermons by having them printed in book form, and over the years I've given thought to that uh, as well. But it's occurred to me more recently that an even more convenient way uh, to capture and redistribute such sermons uh, is in the form of podcasts, uh, even as I've already done once or twice this year. Well, with the coming of the summer, that's what I intend to do for the next few months. I've selected some of those sermons that uh, certainly for myself in the preparation and preaching of them have been most beneficial And with a few new introductions that I'll be making to them, I intend uh, to republish those sermons as podcasts. So to start with, for the next few weeks, uh, I want to share with you the final sermons from my series on the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, I was finishing that series up in the year 2010. And that sermon series on the whole of Matthew's Gospel is one which Uh, Really, to this day, I consider most formative for my own thinking on the doctrine of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, You probably know Matthew's gospel is known for its emphasis on this theme, and my own understanding of the concept of the kingdom of God and the eschatology of the Bible that lies behind it, well, it exploded during that preaching through the book of Matthew that I did those many years ago. Of course, the Gospel of Matthew concludes with the famous final words of Jesus to his disciples that we now know of as the Great Commission. I preached five sermons on the Great Commission, and those are the sermons that I want to share with you here at the beginning of the summer. I'll say that they really do contain the full ripening of my own understanding and conviction about the mission of the church in the world, particularly as it is laid out throughout the Gospel of Matthew and culminating in Jesus' words. I listened to them again, of course, in preparation for these podcasts, and brothers and sisters, I was taken back to a time of rich discovery uh, and excitement in my own ministry, and I trust that those things will be of blessing to you as it was to me. Uh, The first sermon on the Great Commission was entitled, The Resurrection Proclamation, and that's what is ahead if you choose to listen on. Matthew chapter 28, beginning at verse 1. Now after the Sabbath... 
Toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. When they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. As we return this morning to our series from Matthew's Gospel, we find ourselves at the end of Matthew's Gospel. Abruptly, perhaps. Mysteriously, perhaps. But, very obviously, this is where Matthew wants to end his story. With this passage, a passage that's come to be deservedly famous throughout the Christian church, a passage has been given the name, the Great Commission. But I suspect that there are few of us here this morning who have ever done what I want to do with you now. That is, to hear these final words of our Lord Jesus to his disciples from the position, the place of total saturation with all that has come before it in the Gospel of Matthew. I've certainly never done this before. As many times as I've read these words, I've not heard them or studied them from the vantage point of the full understanding or backdrop of all that Matthew has been saying up to this point. We've spent a long time in Matthew's Gospel together, have we not? By my numbering, 137 sermons so far. 
over three years, not including a few breaks. We've gotten to know the theme of this book, this tax collector turned disciple, turned chronicler of the life of Jesus of Nazareth. His theme throughout this book has been the good news of the kingdom. The expression he has coined, unique to him, is the kingdom of heaven. This has been the recurring Focus. This is organized, his material all throughout. That's one of the reasons, that's the primary reason why we see things in Matthew we don't see in other places. This is why Matthew is different from the other Gospels. Matthew wants us, more than anybody else in the New Testament, to see Jesus as the long-awaited king. And to recognize that he has brought the kingdom of heaven to earth. Now that's been our... Considerations for quite some time. We've soaked ourselves in these things. And in light of all that we've come to understand about what Matthew's doing and telling the story of Jesus, the question that we should have in our minds as we return to Matthew and we come to the end of his book is this. Why does Matthew end his story here? With these words, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Have you ever thought, as you've thought about the ending of Matthew, these famous words, have you ever thought about how from one vantage point it's a rather odd way to end a story of Jesus? There's more to the story. You know that from the other gospel accounts. Jesus made more appearances and said more things than what Matthew records. But if you were listening to Matthew alone, you would get the impression the only thing Jesus talks about as he comes back to his disciples from the dead is authority given to him and what they're to do for all the nations. There are some very touching portrayals of Jesus being reconciled to certain disciples like Peter or Thomas. In other gospel accounts, those things also took place. But it's as if Matthew is not concerned about that. What he's interested in is what Jesus has to say to the eleven as a body as he commissions them to go to all the nations. Above all, there's something not insignificant that takes place just after these words. We know it from other accounts. That is that Jesus ascends into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. He goes to be with his Father. You know that from other gospel accounts. You'd never know that from Matthew. If Matthew's gospel is all you had, you might read this. And if you believed it, you'd say, well, where do I find this resurrected Christ? Where is he living now? Do I need to go? Like the three kings of Orient and find him in some Middle Eastern city? Where is he? Now, Matthew, I would say to you, is writing, aware that the story of Jesus is known. He is aware of other gospel accounts. He knows that the readers will not only be dependent upon him. The ascension of Christ to the Father's right hand is not unimportant to Matthew, but it's not the thing he wants to end with. He is not so much interested in this as he is what Jesus says on that mountain before he goes into the heavens. 
As a matter of fact, the way he's crafted this uh, account uh, leading from the resurrection to the mountain, it's very clear that Matthew is remembering the details that make this point that Jesus, as he comes back from the dead, is intent on gathering his disciples to say just these things. I observed this to you last time we were in Matthew's gospel, that when the angel announces the resurrection to the women, he says to them, in so many words, he is risen now. Listen, go tell the brothers to go to Galilee. Jesus will meet them there, and he has something he wants to say to them. Jesus appears to the women as well. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. And then he gets down to business. Tell the brothers to go to Galilee, and I will meet them there. And Matthew emphasizes that they're on their way to Galilee when the guards and the leaders of Israel come up with their uh, uh, hatched plan to explain away the resurrection. And then in the account that we're considering this morning, we read in verse 16, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And then we're told why it was so important for them to go there immediately after meeting the resurrected Christ. What is the connection between the resurrection of Christ from the dead and this proclamation that he makes on the top of the mountain there in Galilee? If your memory is exceedingly good, you may remember that the very first sermon I preached from Matthew's gospel over three years ago, I said, everything in this book is leading up to this moment when Jesus says these things to his 11 remaining disciples. I wish I could tell you that was an insight unique to me, but uh, far from it. Those who study Matthew's gospel all have come to see there is something scholars call the principle of end stress. An author who's writing a story can bring out certain things that are important in a variety of ways, but one of the most common ways... And one of the most effective ways is the thing he ends on. That's the thing that he's emphasizing. And this is well understood about Matthew's gospel. Matthew's bringing to full summation and consummation all that he's been driving at in telling the story of Jesus. And so we're returning after a little bit of a break to Matthew's gospel and to its conclusion and All these introductory things I've said in order to underscore why we're going to take so seriously these words of our Lord. We're going to be determined not to miss anything, if we can, of what the inspired author intends for us to see. So I want you to plan with me for a a small handful of sermons on this climactic passage, which will be a fitting conclusion to our whole series in Matthew Since my introduction this morning has been long, I only have two points in the sermon. And those two points will be put in terms of these two headings. First, the question that Christ's resurrection raises. And secondly, the answer that Christ's resurrection proclamation gives. This will set us up to look at the particulars. We're looking at the whole this morning. And this will set us up the next few weeks to look at the particulars. First, the question that Christ's resurrection raises. You'll remember from another gospel account the state of mind, the demoralized state of heart the disciples were in when they 
had seen Jesus' death and knew him to be buried and in the tomb. Luke records for us this. When Jesus actually appears to them and cloaks his true identity from them and speaks with them for a time, and they say, not knowing that it's Jesus they speak to, they say in Luke 24, verse 21, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. You hear what they had hoped? You hear what hopes lie dashed for them now on the floor? As they know that this one they'd followed is in the tomb, or so they think. But when Jesus is raised from the dead, and he shows himself to them, and he shows himself to be triumphant over every possible power, the powers of Jewish courts, the powers of Roman guards, the power even of death, what question do you think might have come into their minds? We had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. And all of a sudden, he's alive. They see that he has power. They had never imagined he has power over death itself. So what would be the question that might come to their minds? Don't you think that it would be some variation on the question that they had raised to him that we studied there on the Mount of Olive? The question that might have come to their minds would be something like this, Jesus. Is it really you? Jesus, is this the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? You can well imagine that would have been a question that would have come to their mind. The question, Jesus, does this mean that you're going to rule now on the earth and over the earth? Are you going to bring now to fulfillment everything the prophets foretold about your reign you make everything right again here on the earth for the sake of your people, especially your people Israel? Brothers and sisters, it seems to me it would have been the most logical question to ask at this point because after all, they'd seen with their own eyes Jesus' broken, bloodied, lifeless body. And now they were seeing him in the flesh having displayed power Beyond their comprehension. So, so the question would be, how are you going to use this power, Jesus? This power that you have shown us you have even over death. Now, brothers and sisters, Matthew, I think, assumes that after all that he's told us, this would be a pressing question in the minds of the disciples. He doesn't actually record them asking this question on the mountain, but there is another gospel writer who does record that. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Acts and the first chapter. You need this a couple of times, so you might want to put your bulletin there. Turn to Acts chapter 1. This is written, you'll remember, by Luke. He's already written the gospel of Luke, as we call it, and he's continuing in this book of Acts. And he records with his own words the details that he remembers under the inspiration of the Spirit of the same event, Jesus meeting with his disciples. And he records the very question that they put to him. Look at verse one, chapter 1, verse 6. <clears throat> so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? 
It's an obvious question to ask. They understand all that lies behind Jesus, the resurrected one, in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament, or the Old Testament, rather. They understand that the Old Testament scriptures foretell a time when there's going to be a son of David, David, the greatest king of all Israel's history. But a son was promised of David who would reign on his throne and he would be like David was anointed by God. That's where we get our name, our word Messiah. And this son would be given dominion like David was over the nations, but far beyond anything David experienced in his reign. This son would have dominion over all the nations of the earth. And he would use that authority and power for the good of those nations. The disciples recognized that the prophets foretold a time when all the earth would come to submit themselves to the son of David, the anointed one. And God would use that son of David to make good on the promise he had made to Abraham, father of the Jews, that through him all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. This is what lies behind that question that the disciples are asking. This hope we have of a glorious future, will you now fulfill this? Will you now come into your kingdom? Now, brothers and sisters, I have not this morning thus far just been engaging in a little bit of contextual work in Matthew 28, a little bit of historical work to get inside the minds of those first century original disciples of our Lord Jesus. I've been doing all this. I've been talking about the question that Jesus' resurrection raises because you should want to know as much as those disciples This much, what is the connection between the resurrection of Christ and the coming of his kingdom? As a matter of fact, it's not saying too much to say that the relationship between his resurrection and the coming of the kingdom should be the whole pivot of your life. Everything that you are as a Christian is defined by this, the relationship between the resurrection of Christ and the coming of his kingdom. It's what gives you hope. If you're a Christian, you know that good things are in store and that his resurrection is a guarantee of that. It's what gives you a sense of purpose as a Christian. You know why you're here and what you're supposed to be doing. We have opportunity to be reminded of that this morning. And as we continue in our study of these final words of our Lord, you see, This resurrection event of our Lord Jesus is not, should not be in your minds, just one more significant event in a whole series of equally significant events in the life of Jesus that you remember as you remember the story of Jesus. This is the event which gives significance to everything else you know about Jesus. This resurrection is what gives you an understanding of why this person is even worth your loyalty, your devotion, your faith. It's what gives meaning to all other facts. When the early church greeted each other by saying, He is risen. He is risen indeed. They were pointing to that event which defined them as a body, as a community of people.
This question, then, is a question that you should know the answer to. And the answer should be very precious to you. The question that's raised by Christ's resurrection. Let's look secondly then, for the remainder of our time, at the answer that Christ's resurrection proclamation gives. And again, we're looking at it in the broad way. We're looking at the shape of his words, not the specific details which we'll come back to in a moment. There are two parts to his answer. Lord, is this the time? Has the kingdom now finally come? There's a two-part answer. These two parts. Jesus says to them, in effect, yes. The kingdom has come because of what I've done. But the second part of his answer is, no. The kingdom will come through what I'm calling you to do. Let's look at those two parts as we look at Acts 28, the last few verses. The kingdom has come, Jesus says in so many words. As he says in verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now we have a problem, I suspect, as we hear those words this morning. We have the problem of the response of our hearts to those words, of course. Of course. Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth. Of course. That's obvious, isn't it? Doesn't Jesus say something here that's inherently true, obviously true in the nature of who he is? This, this person who's speaking is one of the three personalities within the one Godhead. We've been taught by the scriptures that it's by this person that all things were brought into existence. He was before Abraham was. He's always ruled. He's always had all authority. And so when we hear Jesus say, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, we have the response, well, yeah. Doesn't sound like it's a particularly profound thing that Jesus says. If anything, it's just a reminder, you know, just so you don't forget. I'm the boss. Brothers and sisters, we have something of this problem for a very good reason. That is, we are typically, in our view of Christ, preoccupied with his divine nature. Now, if you have a preoccupation about Jesus, that's about as good a preoccupation as you can have. Jesus, this man from Nazareth, was God himself who took on human flesh and a human soul. Pretty good to be preoccupied with that. But if you are preoccupied with that, you'll fail to see the point that Jesus is making now. Because Jesus, as the second person of the Godhead, has always had all authority and power. But brothers and sisters, Jesus is not stating the obvious as he stands before these men as a man. A man from Nazareth. The man who just suffered and bled and died, crushed under the heel of the mighty Roman Empire. The man who says these things to him, to them, was saying these things that in that time, everyone knew who was the one in whom all authority over earth 
possessed? That was Caesar. This man who stands and says, not only all authority on earth, but all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's saying something that could not have been said of himself before that time in a very true sense. In a very real sense. Jesus of Nazareth was not Lord of Lords and King of Kings until that particular time in history. This was the announcement, the proclamation Jesus was making. That there is now ruling over all heaven and earth, the seen and unseen realms of reality. There is ruling over all things a man of God's choosing. I now am the means by which all the authority of God is mediated and administered. In heaven and in earth. And mind you, Jesus had said many things throughout his earthly ministry prior to this time about the authority and power that he had. And he demonstrated that in multiple times. But there was something about his resurrection from the dead that was the occasion of an official conferring upon him authority and power by his father. It's because of that that Peter could say in his sermon at Pentecost, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. As we're here at the end of Matthew's gospel, I want you to go just in your memory to the very beginning of his gospel and remember something that took place when Jesus was just about to begin his earthly ministry We're told that he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness in order to be tempted by Satan. And you remember how the temptation goes. We'll cut to the most dramatic moment in that temptation. Jesus is led to a mountain. And he is shown all, if you will, the the nations of the earth. He's shown the earth in some representative way. And Satan says, you may have All of this, all authority, you may have that if you do but this one thing. If you bow down and worship me. We made the observation when we considered that, that Satan actually had something to offer. In the inscrutable providence of God, Satan had been given leave to rule this earth. He's the prince of the world. Satan says, I'll give this to you. This is all I'm asking. You change your allegiance from the Father. You give up this notion of ruling all the earth by means of the authority He gives you. And you change that to ruling on my behalf. And you can have it right now. The easy way. So as Jesus stands before His disciples on that second mountain the close of his ministry, he's saying to his disciples, what Satan once offered to me the easy way, I have now been given through much trial by my father, and I'm taking it. He's given it. And I'm accepting what he's giving. You need to know, I the one that you followed in much weakness and humiliation. I am now King of kings and Lord of lords.
My kingdom has come. My brothers and sisters, I want to say to you in light of that, to you sitting here in front of me, this day in October, welcome to the kingdom of God. Welcome to the kingdom of heaven. The king has come and he has been enthroned. The long-awaited son of David, the Messiah, he has been crowned. There should be nothing that you are more aware of as you live from day to day than this fact. Jesus is king. He reigns and rules. This one who bears your nature, who has entered into your sufferings, who knows you in the kind of knowledge that shared experience communicates, the one who died for you, the one who came to save you from your sins, he's the one who reigns. And no matter what you encounter, no matter what you see, no matter what people profess, this is the truth. And there is nothing more defining about the Christian than this conviction. The kingdom has come because Jesus reigns. This is why you are a hopeful people. It's not because you're hoping against hope the kingdom might come. It might happen. It's because you are convinced that by the resurrection of Christ from the dead and all that the Father saw in that of significance and invested in that act by way of significance, Jesus has become king in heaven and earth. The God-man has come to his throne to rule. Disciples want to know from Jesus the question that has been raised by his resurrection is, has the kingdom come? And his first, the first part of his answer is, yes, it has. It has come through what I have done. This is the second part of his answer. And this is very important also to defining who we are and what we're about as Christians. The second part of his answer, in so many words, is this. The kingdom will come through what I call you to do. Look at verse 19 and 20. Of course, I have those in mind. He says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Brothers and sisters, so much to be considered in those words. So much in light of what story Matthew has been telling us. This reference to the nations is of explosive significance. Jesus has been saying to his disciples, don't go anywhere but to the people of Israel until this moment. This reference to baptism, that's a ritual that hasn't even been mentioned since John the Baptist came baptizing. Back in chapter 3 is the last time we heard of this thing called baptism, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you This reference to discipleship in terms of learning to obey the Lord Jesus, that's something we need to consider a bit more. This whole reference to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that's been a point of tremendous interest ever since Matthew recorded this because no triad quite like it has ever been mentioned in the Scriptures. It's when Jesus says, baptize in the name of these three persons. We'll have time, Lord willing, to come back to those things. I simply want you to see this morning 
how great a work Jesus is commissioning his disciples to do. You need to put yourself in their shoes, their sandals, so to speak. Listen to what he says through their ears. Me? Us? To the nations? To all the nations? Make disciples of nations? Now, brothers and sisters, whatever they thought of what Jesus said, and that day, whatever first impressions they had, surely this would have come soonest to their minds. This question they've had, is the kingdom now going to come? The answer is yes, because the king is crowned, but the answer is not yet. Because Jesus, they would have heard, Jesus was giving them responsibility to bring about the very thing they wanted so much. They want this time of glory to come. And Jesus is giving them responsibility to bring that about. They would have something to do to bring about the kingdom. Jesus was not, they might have hoped for this, Jesus was not just going to wave his hand and make it so. Like we might imagine he did at creation, though they're only as words spoken. Jesus was not going to bring all things to consummation that way. He was going to bring his kingdom about in a longer, messier, or difficult way. Remember how much we had already seen Jesus preparing his disciples for that? We'd seen him tell stories that showed them that the coming of the kingdom would be this protracted thing, that would be this messy thing, this difficult thing, this thing that would require a great deal of patience and labor. And he had given them hints of that in those stories, but now he's lowering the rest of the boom on them. He's giving them the rest of the story. Why is it going to come that way? It's going to come that way because they're going to bring the kingdom. He's entrusting to them this work. It's their job. He will be with them. He will be enabling them to the end of the age. But they will actually have something to do with when the end of that age comes by their obedience to this commission. Do you still have your finger or a bulletin or something in Acts chapter 1? You see how Jesus does that in that account as well. We read from the question found in verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? You hear what they ask? Are you going to do it now, Jesus? Are you going to make it happen? And Jesus' response is to say, first, it's not for you to know times and seasons. The Father is fixed by his own authority. You heard him say something like that on the other mountain. But then he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the way Luke remembers and records for us that great commission there on the mountain. The disciples want to know, Jesus, what are you going to do? And Jesus wants to talk to them about what they are going to do. Now, the whole scope of what he says for them to do has would, I hope, soon enough become obvious to them. It would require more than just those 11 men. They would realize that. They would realize that this was actually a commission for the whole church. It's the calling 
of the church, the church that Jesus said he would build. The point of all this is this. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus has taught his disciples, will come when God's will is finally done on earth as it is in heaven. And here Jesus says, you're to go and make that happen. Disciple the nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So when you pray, I will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Remember what Jesus tells the disciples about how this prayer will be answered. It will be answered as he works his power through us. May I say to you, brothers and sisters, that at least by my own reckoning and understanding, this is what makes sense of our Lord's ascension back into heaven. If Jesus was going to bring the final consummation of the kingdom, immediately, that is to say, apart from means, apart from you and me as his means, then why would he not have stayed there? Probably in Jerusalem and affected all of that just there. And then, but if the kingdom is going to come by means of our labors on his behalf, then well, he might well, he might return to the Father for his reward and reign over us from there in glory and from that place send his Spirit which will enable us to do what he has bidden and to direct from there those who advance his kingdom on his behalf here. I said a moment ago to you, by the first part of Jesus' answer, welcome to the kingdom of God. That's where you live now. That's what you're part of now. It has come. But I say to you in light of the second half of Jesus' answer, welcome to the king's army. The army that is entrusted with the advancing of that kingdom. You hear what the combination of these two things does for a thoughtful Christian? It gives us, at one and the same time, hope and purpose. As a church, hope because the kingdom has come in the crowning of Christ. It's a response of the Father to his resurrection. It gives us purpose because we are here. We are given the task of advancing his kingdom. You may be aware of more things than this, but nothing more aware of. And that Jesus Christ reigns. You may be motivated by many things, but nothing more so than that you and I have the privilege of advancing his rule and bringing about the consummation of his kingdom. Can I put it to you this way? You and I, brothers and sisters, are not just here killing time. We're not here waiting For the return of Christ, the consummation of the kingdom, just waiting for some eschatological alarm clock to go off. And know that by some inscrutable purpose of God, he just wanted us to wait. And now our wait is over. There's far more purpose for your life than this. That clock, if you want to speak of it that way, that alarm will go off. When we have completed the work that Christ has given to us to do in these final words. The whole reason for our wait 
is to give us time to work. And to work for this kingdom that has come and is coming. Has come through what Christ has done. And is coming through what he is doing through us. This is where Matthew has been leading all this time as he's told the story of the kingdom of heaven. This is a fitting way for him to end this story of Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to Resurrection Life with Pastor Nathan Trice, a ministry of Resurrection Presbyterian Church in Matthews, North Carolina. If you've been blessed by today's podcast, consider sharing it with someone you know. And thank you for joining us.